Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Allen. This week, I speak with Kimber Dowsett, Security Architect at 18F. We'll be talking about key factors to consider when contemplating a vulnerability disclosure policy, how you can develop a policy regardless of the size of your organization, and the peril in opening your product to scrutiny too soon. Enjoy the show. Hi, Kimmer, and thank you for joining me on today's O'Reilly Security Podcast. We're going to talk about vulnerability disclosure. Let's start with a brief introduction. Many of our listeners know you as Ms. Bat, self-proclaimed stabby infosec and space bat on Twitter. But can you tell us more about your everyday alter ego? Sure. I'm Kimber, and I work for 18F. I also do some work for NASA, that little place you probably heard of on the side, but I'm full-time at 18F with a short, you know, 10-hour-a-week detail at NASA just to take care of systems there. Um, so day-to-day, I'm doing a bit of a balancing act between infrastructure, engineering, um, all of this work at 18F, incident response. Um, I handle our vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty work. We have a tiger team, and um, I'm a part of that. So all those things are a lot more work than one person can handle. So I have to change hats a few times a day, but it works out pretty well because I get, I go kind of nuts if I'm focusing on one thing for too long. Um, so I guess I'll say about me, uh, I'm a total introvert in real life. So that's why I've chosen to work on distributed teams. You know, I can mute the camera and kind of hide in my own world or my, you know, my little back cave, except for times that I have to travel. So right now I'm in DC and I'm enjoying the scenery and the nice weather. Um, it's it's easy for me to be loud and confident and stabby and all those things on Twitter and kind of yell at people for password management or, you know, bad practices. But I, I really try to balance that, particularly with the following that I have on Twitter to let folks know that that it's okay to be an introvert and be anxious or have social anxiety and and you could still enjoy a level of success in your field like I have. So That's great. And I love it when people are willing to open up and talk about themselves, especially to empower others. So thank you on behalf of so many of us for doing that. You mentioned 18F and 18F has a pretty significant role in the government. You sort of touched on that. But it's also a fairly young service. How would you explain 18F to those who aren't familiar? Um, sure, that's a good question. At the heart of 18F, we're a deliver a digital delivery service business, right? So what does that mean? You're a government agency, you want an app, we can build it. But what's special about us is that we'll do it transparently. We'll we'll do it open source and it'll be open for the community to review. And we do our best to show that agile methods can and do work in the government space. So what does that mean? Well, that means that processes that normally take 18 to 24 months in government from, you know, start to finish, we can condense down to six months, three months, we work in sprints. We, we have still to jump through some of those hoops and cut through some of that red tape. But our mission is to deliver quality products and serve as a role model for other agencies who are interested in agile development, but don't really understand what, what that would look like in the government space. So we're doing it and we're making it work. Uh, that said, then we have to set the bar really high for ourselves because, you know, if we fail, <laughs> then we kind of, you know, shoot ourselves in the foot with, with trying to be that role model and to say, hey, use Agile, let's work faster, let's work better, let's work safer, more securely. 
but we have to do it right. Or, you know, the whole thing kind of falls apart when we, you, you have to practice what you preach. Sure. Right? That sounds like a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. <laughs> well, one of your key roles at 18F was writing the vulnerability disclosure policy or being part of the team that wrote the vulnerability disclosure policy that was released late last year. What are some of the benefits or the motivating factors for the creation of a vulnerability disclosure policy? Good question. So first we'll talk about the motivating factor. The initial draft of the TTS, uh, that's technology transformation service. We can we can circle back to what that is in a in a second, but that policy came about because I was literally getting dozens of submissions a month for agencies, including 18F, um, vulnerability disclosures happening over Twitter DM. So folks just saw me out there on Twitter. And for whatever reason, people seem to trust me and think that, okay, well, she's in government. So this is a government vulnerability. I'll send it to her. Um, but it, but it, as awesome as that is, and I'm so grateful that folks disclosed at all in any kind of way, uh, it made a lot of extra work for me because then I was tasked with contacting the right agencies that these vulnerabilities needed to go to or, you know, figure out what that looked like from a triage perspective here at 18F. And do I need to consider this an incident that they, this discovery, or is it just a misconfiguration error? So not having a disclosure of policy in place actually made a lot more work for me. So once, you know, I kind of took a step back and said, what if we had a responsible disclosure channel here at 18F? it kind of gained a life of its own, right? I opened up an issue in GitHub and I just started writing the thing and kind of looking at other agency policies, um, other company, private company policies, and put together something that seemed to make sense for us. And it worked out that simultaneously we were having conversations about bug bounty programs and what that would look like here. And a disclosure policy was like step one, you have to check that box or you've got a blocker. So there were a few motivating factors there. And the benefit was that all of a sudden, my Twitter account got a lot more quiet. <laughs> so and people had a way to kind of safely in a TLS encrypted web form or secure email, let me know something was broken without it kind of just trusting Twitter direct messaging as a as a reporting wow, channel. So it sounds like you had a real clear motivator there. I would think that most organizations don't have such an organic beginning to their vulnerability disclosure program. Yeah, they're lucky. <laughs> I guess they maybe maybe they thought about it before we did. No, yeah, that's yeah. Great, as we though. grow, it, it was a you growing had some pain, clear signals you know? there, and um, I'm not sure that every organization gets such clear signals that they're ready for that sort of program. Can you share any insight into how long it took as an organization for 18F to develop and implement your vulnerability disclosure policy? Yeah, sure. Um, from inception to launch, it took about four months, which in the government space is like really fast. But in the private sector, you know, I'm sure there's some folks going, oh, four months, why so long? Now, we were preparing for, we've, we've always kind of taken this approach of baked in security. So without even realizing we were preparing to take this step, we were preparing to take this step. Um, I was able to just work the way that we always work, you know, in GitHub and, and openly to draft that policy out in GitHub. So our changes have all been transparent. Feedback's been transparent. We've had, you know, everyone from engineers to communications people to legal contributing to that repo at this point, which is fantastic. 
And so I'd say it really wasn't authored in a traditional way, but I think we did it the way that that we do things at 18F and it made sense for us. So your policy was announced last November. Have there been any valuable lessons learned that you would share with other organizations considering a vulnerability disclosure policy? Sure. I think the the organization has to be ready first. And we can talk more about what readiness looks like. But for now, I guess I'll focus on the lessons learned. Um, I think determining the scope of the policy is going to be critical to its success. You have to clearly define the scope for researchers or they're going to hesitate to participate. Um, I think a lot of researchers, while you think that legal speak may just get garbled in the policy, I think it's important to make sure that you have covered legal implications like specificity of your scope, um, legal action, the process to report, uh, things like that. There's no question that you also have to have a robust workflow for how you're going to respond to vulnerabilities that are disclosed to your organization. So having the policy in place definitely benefits your org, right? Because then people know how to report. But if you don't have a way to respond or remediate to vulnerabilities as they start pouring in, then you're going to find yourself in a bottleneck. I think that building out your workflow, uh, what your triage, what your response looks like, and doing some dry runs before you launch that policy are just as important as the policy itself. Right. So like so many other things, preparation is key. Correct. Right. Yes. Well, vulnerability disclosure policies, as you know, were novel just a few years ago with major tech companies like Facebook and Microsoft just beginning their programs in 2013. And since then, we're seeing growing adoption of these programs. It sounds like at 18F, you guys had some clear signals that you were at a point where you needed to start considering a vulnerability disclosure, an official program. What are some key considerations that other organizations should think about before they enact their own vulnerability disclosure program? Um, so this kind of goes back to my previous answer with um, scope. Are they uh, set up to respond to vulnerabilities as they come in? Do they have workflow in place for remediation? Um, that plan for response and remediation is critical before they launch the disclosure plan. Um, I think that organizations also need to be really sure that they're not relying on that bone disclosure policy to find the bugs or vulns or holes in their applications and code. They need to have a mature solid program product, sorry, in place before they open it up to the world, right? And say, here's my baby, you know, um, tear it apart. Vulnerability disclosure policies and bug bounty programs shouldn't be thought of as low-cost QA departments or, or QA programs. If your product hasn't been tested, torn apart, tested again, gone through pen tests, um, really what you want to put out there is the best product that you can put out with every confidence that it's secure before you decide to, to put it out there for the world with a disclosure policy. And particularly about bug bounty, even if you're ready for a vulnerable disclosure policy, there's a good chance you're not ready for a bug bounty program. So code that hasn't been tested isn't really viable uh, for these kind of programs. If you're pushing that stuff to prod and you haven't tested it for security holes in every way you know how, um, I guess that's really a whole other can of worms, but you don't want to open that up for hackers and welcome them to to find the holes in Interesting. It. So I, I've got to ask, why? Uh, why do you need your product to be ready to go before you and uh, vetted from a security perspective before you open it up? Is it the sheer volume of information that would be coming in or? 
Well, there's that, right? There's also the piece that if your product has holes, um, and I'm just using product loosely sure. for application code, whatever. But if if there are holes in it, um, you have no indi- you like you have no guarantee that it's going to be a responsible researcher mm. that finds that vulnerability, right? So your hope would be that that that's the case. But um, I really think that it it's part of your maturity as an organization to say, okay, this this is our product, and we've made it as secure as we think we can. And then you kind of say, hey, you are welcome to legally check our site for holes without, you know, fear of prosecution or violation of CFAA laws or or any of those kind of things, right? But there's a good chance if your app is full of holes that um, a bad actor is going to find it just as quickly as a good actor. Um, the difference is, is that once you launch that vulnerability disclosure policy, let's say, um, you've kind of just announced to the world that your product's great, right? And that it's good. And and it's almost like a, I dare you to find a hole hmm. in it kind of thing. Um, so it, it gives people more visibility into your organization and into the work that you're doing, uh, particularly like for 18F, right? There were press releases galore when we launched our vulnerability disclosure policy, especially, you know, given that we had it out on GitHub and, you know, it was kind of a big deal for us to to have a successful launch of the policy, right? So all of a sudden we had people kind of digging into our code that maybe wouldn't have before that press or that publicity. So there there are a lot of considerations there, but uh, you can't count on it being a good guy that finds those holes for you. So if you can just secure the thing as, as well as you think you can, uh, the policy and, and later above bounty program, if you decide to go down that route, is really supplement to your security, not, you know, a foundational piece of it, if that, that makes, makes sense. a lot of sense. And I think the maturation of your product of your program is so important as you consider this, not just, you know, there's a lot of insight that you're giving here about, you know, bad actors, security researchers, reputation, also, you know, return on investment. Um, if you could be using your dollars to just originally secure the obvious things first, it makes more sense to start there. Yeah. Absolutely. And you, you touched on this, I think, briefly um, before. Like we talked a little bit about scope. But for small organizations, is there an option for a vulnerability disclosure policy or would a smaller organization be priced out of the cost versus reward on implementing vulnerability disclosure? So in other words, does a vulnerability disclosure program scale down? Um, Sure. That's a really good question. Folks listening are welcome to fork my Hmm. policy and modify it for your own organization, right? And and I'm half kidding, but half not kidding. That's why it's out there. Um, even if the even if the policy for 18F doesn't work for your org exactly as written, like maybe it's a, a jump start for you. There are some folks out there who have you know basic vulnerability disclosure policies on GitHub and are doing some meaningful, transparent work in that field. A lot of folks don't know HackerOne has a free tier for companies who just want to run a basic vulnerability disclosure platform, you know, not bounty or any of the bells and whistles of an enterprise solution, but they definitely have that as an option. Um, I really think organizations need to do their best to secure their code before going live. I can't say that enough. Uh, But when you're ready, there are certainly cost-effective ways to publish a vulnerability disclosure policy um, or get that, you know, get your current policy out there on a free platform. Um, 
So definitely research. It will be your friend in this particular market. There are ways to do it. And there's there's no reason really not to once you feel like your product code, you know, has reached a, a level of maturity that you're ready to open it up. It's always great to hear that there's options, cost-effective options, of course, uh, for smaller organizations. We talked a little bit about this already too, but one of the key considerations or the larger points that you should examine when you're discussing a vulnerability disclosure policy is scope. Would you recommend organizations begin with small scope and expand the program, or is this an all-in scenario to get the greatest benefit? So full disclosure, I'm not an expert in this field. I can only speak to my own experience. And my own experience says start small, full stop. Um, You've really got to get a handle on your response and remediation workflow, that piece we talked about, right? People report it. How do you triage it? How do you fix it? What's that look like? You've got to make sure you've got all that stuff in place. Um, And everything you think you've covered, trust me, you missed something, right? So if you go all in with all your applications right out of the gate or all your products or all your sites, there's a good chance that you're going to get hit in ways that you're not prepared to handle and probably with issues you'd never even considered. So when we launched the 18F policy, we launched it with three sites in scope. Um, And that wasn't even like subdomains. We excluded a lot of our subdomains. Um, So we launched and then we have slowly been expanding as teams feel they're they're ready, right? So if a team says to me, okay, we think we're good to go to be added to the disclosure policy, you know, then we kind of take a look at at their pen test results, you know, the development, the back end, they're they're doing a lot of code reviews and and then they reach a point where they say, okay, we're ready. Let's let's let the world uh, let's welcome the world to to pick apart our site. It's a much slower process, but I think that the return is a lot greater if you take things slowly because you can really put more like meat and potatoes, as it were, into your response work pl- workflow, into your remediation plan. You may find that um, that there are parts of your workflow that cause a bottleneck, um, slow things down, and and then really, you know, you the triage process, I guess, workflow that comes out of this is kind of crazy because you have to make that determination whether or not a vulnerability is just like a configuration error or if like it's a security incident and full stop, we have to like treat it as a P1 security issue. So I think that the the idea of just, oh, yay, we're all in, just everything's in scope. Um, that you're shooting yourself in the foot if you go that route, at least in my experience. Um, it's it's going to be, I, ha- I feel like we've had a very successful, slow rollout of vulnerability disclosure as we have just, I think, been cautious. We've, yeah, proceeded with caution is probably the best way to look at it. And that's worked for right. us. It's great to hear that working for you. And it's great to distill that advice and pass it on forward to other organizations. So there's been a lot of conversation on on the Twitters, as there is. Um, and I was struck recently by a tweet from Bruce Potter, aka Shmoo, or at GDED on Twitter, um, where he was talking about this red versus blue 
construct. And for those of us not looking at Twitter right now, I'm going to go ahead and just quote him here. And he said, the expense of focusing or at the expense of focusing on risk, threats, and defense, it's not red versus blue. That's our own construct. It's about building defensible systems. And of course, I completely agree with this statement. And it struck me that a vulnerability disclosure policy represents one way to encourage meaningful communication and collaboration between these constructs of red team and blue team. And I'm curious, you know, that's obviously an oversimplification of a pretty complex dynamic, but have you seen more collaboration and constructive communication between researchers and defenders through your vulnerability program? Yeah, I can speak to ours. I think we've been quite fortunate in this area. We've gotten very high quality submissions uh, in response to our policy. And researchers have been even so kind as to include steps to remediate. So that's been pretty amazing. Um, I'm sure other organizations may not have that experience, but but we are. So far, <laughs> I'm not going with. So from my perspective, it feels very collaborative especially since I'm the one tasked with triaging and prioritizing submissions that come through the platform. And so once we're able to confirm the vulnerabilities, so that's like step one, right? Is it really a thing? Then our blue team, which is, you know, um, my passion, we have to think about ways that we would have would have defended against this had it been a real vulnerability, or if it is, ways that we could defend it until remediation's complete. And then our pen testers or security engineers or our developers can hopefully add something about the vulnerability to their toolkits so they can kind of revisit that for future testing as they are building apps. You know, we really shoot for baked in security, but there's always going to be a gotcha. So if researchers submit reports in meaningful ways, we are certainly able to use that to save ourselves some time and energy with the triage process and just go straight to like, okay, how do we defend it? How could we catch it in the future? So this is really kind of stumbles into that area of purple teams. So we talk about the red team and blue team just kind of working together. And here at 18F, we, you know, we don't really have red team and blue team. We just are a team. So one day I may look at attack vectors, one day I may look at defense. You know, we have a much more collaborative security team here, I guess, would be a way to put it. But what we're talking about are teams working together to secure systems, code, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, so in, in that realm, when researchers make a, a meaningful submission, I really want to make sure in my responses that they uh, feel like their discoveries were welcomed. Um, responsibly disclosed, of course. And, you know, that it it's really part of our building blocks here. You know, they then have become part of like 18F because they've contributed in a meaningful way to one of our applications. So um, I think when researchers feel welcome, we kind of all win. That's really encouraging. Uh, you talked a little bit about how blue team is your passion and on the topic of blue team or defensive security. You've recently joined us on the committee for O'Reilly Security this year. So welcome to the program committee. We're so glad to have you on board. Thank you. I'm totally doing my best to contribute in a meaningful way, but time is always my blocker. Um, and particularly this week because I'm in D.C. doing D.C. things. Um, so but thank you so much Absolutely. for having me. We're really excited to have you on board. Um, I'd love to know if there's any particular topics or any aspect of the conference that you're especially excited for this year. I'm um, sure. I think that there are a lot of categories that 
uh, we've sort of solicited for submissions. Um, but I really am excited about the teachable moments category. I think it's really important for professionals to to let other folks in the community know that it's okay to fail. It's just a reality in our line of work. But opening up a CFP for folks to share those lessons learned is really a wonderful way to give real world examples of gotchas that seem to plague our industry and, and kind of just give back to the community. I think it's also a great way to spare someone else some growing pains by sharing experiences. But uh, I guess the reality is that leaves more time and energy for them to focus on bigger and better pains. Uh, I'd say if growing your security posture doesn't hurt a little, you're probably not doing it right. And so I think it's great that O'Reilly opened up this category for submissions. And I, I really am looking forward to reading all of them, time if time allows. Absolutely. We're so excited to have this real genuine discourse and to have people share their stories, not only of successes, but of the failures, as you said. So I can't wait to read them all either. And we're excited uh, for this year's event. Um, speaking of this year's event, it's going to be happening uh, beginning October 30th in New York, meaning that we're going to be celebrating Halloween in New York. I think we're all wanting to know, can we expect a spooky bat costume? Let's get Courtney asking the important we're questions. We're hitting hard over here. Um, totally hard-hitting news. Um, well, so I think Halloween's all about stepping outside of yourself to be somebody totally different than the thing you are. And we all know that I'm totally a spooky bat. So I'm probably more likely to dress as a plumber. Um, but, you know, as soon as I thought about that, I realized that a lot of folks argue that InfoSec is a lot like plumbing <laughs> anyway. So maybe that maybe that wouldn't be too um, far away from what I really am. Maybe a 50s house. Oh, wow. So you're going to keep us waiting, huh? Yeah, I'm going to. Inquiring minds will we'll have to find out on October Oh, man, I'm going to start counting down. Uh, speaking of mortifying moments or sharing failures, I think probably one of my more mortifying conference moments ever was, for those of you listening, I didn't recognize Kimber here because she was not dressed as a bat. And the first couple times that I met her, she was dressed in full bat regalia, which was awesome. Um, but I'm pretty sure I just shoved my foot right in my mouth and said, oh, you look just like Ms. Bat. So it's okay. Uh, we all do these things. You were very gracious and kind about it. But uh, yes, thank you for that. Because I maybe <laughs> relived that one in my mind a few times with complete and utter terror. Oh. So. It's hmm. okay. Well, speaking about being <laughs> welcoming, um, you've been an outspoken proponent for new members of the InfoSec community to get involved. What advice would you give to someone who recently joined the InfoSec ranks or perhaps has not yet found a role but would like to join the community? Great question. I think start with checking your local area for meetup groups. There are DC groups all over, uh, DEF CON is DC, uh, groups kind of have sprouted up all over the place. So check your local area code for that. And I love popping into those when I'm in town to have them. They're a great way to meet folks in the area who have interest in security. And you just never know who you're going to meet. You know, um, I also think there's a lot of overlap in the hacker community with maker spaces. So it's never a bad idea to check around for one of those two. You know, you may have to pay 10 bucks a month or something, but it's a really cool place that you can go and work and uh, meet people. I think that you kind of have to do your own research and figure out what makes sense for you. 
InfoSec is kind of a new field, right, relatively, but there are a ton of different branches. There, there are a lot of different career paths. So it's never a bad idea to reach out to folks and ask them what they do day to day. <laughs> Try to remember that we're all going to make our jobs sound way more interesting than they are. So you kind of have to seek out your own information, maybe try on a few hats until you find one that fits. Uh, and I always like to say, don't be a dick, but I'm serious. Don't be a dick. That's fantastic <laughs> advice always. Um, speaking of community involvement and experiencing new things, I'd also chime in and encourage students to check out scholarship opportunities for events like O'Reilly Security. Um, there are opportunities for you to attend events on a student's budget. So don't forget to look at similar chances for discounted courses or conferences or other learning opportunities. And if you're interested in speaking or perhaps nervous about starting to speak, there's also a lot of Ignite or other short format talks at conferences that give you an opportunity to get up on stage and practice and become more comfortable with presenting that don't require you to present 30 or 45 minutes. It really just lets you get your feet wet and start experiencing that. Yeah, and I'll chime in there as a as an introvert and somebody who really struggles with social anxiety. Uh, joining the Toastmasters group at NASA was huge for me. It was the you know first time a few years ago that I stood in front of an actual audience, and 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 like you say, it was about a you know ten fifteen minute time block. But oh man, if you just get that first one out of the way, like they just you're never not nervous, but they do get easier. Um, because the more you practice, the more kind of predictable it is. And the more predictable you are, you know, that you you know whether or not you're going to stutter or freeze, or maybe you have a tick in your voice that you don't realize that you're going. So for mine, out full disclosure, someone told me that I say, um, a lot. So, um, I was, um, stopping to, um, and so it's amazing. Somebody pointed that out and I, I probably still do it, but I think I do it a lot less than I did after that Toastmasters group. Absolutely. Self-awareness can be hard to find. I can tell you that if you get a transcript of a talk that you give or something else, that that can also help you identify those patterns. Or if you watch your talks after the fact, it's so much easier once you've just done it once or twice to identify those and start remediating your plan. Well, sure. And, and just I'll say to folks, don't be so hard on yourselves. You know, nobody likes the way that they sound. I will never listen to this podcast of myself talking. Like it, no one likes the way they sound, but it's it's really good information for you. And it's it's great for your own growth. Great. Um, well, you're obviously a longstanding member of the community and you actually give back to the community in a number of ways from encouraging and supporting people on Twitter, as you said, where it's easier sometimes to be confident and outgoing, um, to hosting Besides Indie. How would you recommend other professionals support the community or get involved if perhaps they've yet to do so? Well, I mean, hands down, I think it's just important to be welcoming to new folks. We were all new at one point, and I, I think that having that sort of rock star, holier-than-thou mentality, it, it doesn't really bring a lot to the community, and it, it certainly doesn't make the community feel very welcoming. So I can only speak for myself. I, I, I know I do my best to answer questions. I'm not always able to get to everyone or respond to every tweet. Sorry, everyone. But I, I do try my best as hard as it is for me with social anxiety. Um, if I see somebody who seems lost at a con, I, I really do try to just talk to them. And a lot of times that just goes a long way to, the, you know, letting them feel like they can 
even just ask you, like, what do I do now? You know, and you can kind of say, oh, you know, go check that out or go check that out or introduce them to the person that maybe they were there and they were dying to meet, but they didn't have the nerve to to talk to. That kind of stuff, responding to questions on Twitter, you know, that can make somebody's week. It can really um, also kind of set the tone for the the kind of professional they turn out to be. You know, you really have the opportunity to affect positive change. B-Sides events are a great way to get engaged in the community. I think that if more professionals encourage new folks to submit to CFPs, uh, maybe volunteer to review, like review a proposal or two just to help someone out with their first submission. Um, it's just not that hard to share wisdom and experience and just be kind to people. So then you know what I'm <laughs> going to say, like for pros too, don't be a dick. Like for That's real. just solid advice all around. Um, well, thank right. you for everything you do for the community. And also, Kimberly, thank you for joining me today on the O'Reilly Security Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. You can reach Kimber on Twitter at Ms. Bat. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Security Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.